I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. It's an easy one to find, last one in the Bible. And uh, we're going to look at chapter 3, the first few verses. You know, I don't know if you know that World War II was won uh, in part by some deception. Um, Somehow this fact had passed me by, and uh, there are books that are written about it, and there's even a movie about it. Um, And maybe you know about this, but I, I didn't. It was the end of World War II. Uh, Nazi generals had gathered together to see if they could salvage some sort of victory from World War II during the war. Um, They knew they had to push back the advancing Allied forces that were just across the border in France. And so they sent spy planes to see if they could figure out the situation. Uh, And and this is what they saw. If you want to put that first picture up. Um, This is actually a picture from the spy plane. And they, they had tanks, they had artillery, airplanes, cannons, jeeps. They saw so much stuff. They, they never, it was like filling every French farmhouse for as far as they could see. They could even hear the tanks rolling in and infantry marching and the radio chatter of soldiers that were preparing for battle. Um, so with this massive allied forces blocking their way, uh, the, the German generals gave up on even trying to think about flanking the American and allied forces. Um, and of course, you know how the war turned out. What they didn't know was kept classified for 50 years until 1995. And that is that what they didn't know about these forces that they could have defeated them all with a handful of darts. Because what they all were, if you want to put up the next picture, is they were all basically balloons without the helium. It was like a Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade. Uh, it was all deception. The, the, big, the things that they were hearing were all speakers, giant speakers that were being blasted at them. Uh, it was it's just fascinating, this whole thing, all these dummy decoys. Everything, the jeeps, the planes, they were all like these canvas balloons that were, were out there. It was all an illusion. Um, if the Allies had been attacked, they would have been completely defenseless. Uh, they had nothing. All they had were these dummy decoys. Well, Sardis, the church that we're looking at this morning, was a little bit like, they called this army the ghost army. I think is the name of the movie and some of the books. Um, but Sardis looked great from a distance, but up close... Um, they were just acting. So in this series in Revelation 1 to 4 that we've been looking at, we're calling it Jesus' words to the church. And Jesus wrote to seven churches in Asia Minor, uh, modern day Turkey. And today, uh, the the letter that we're looking at to Sardis, Jesus, like all, all the letters, is writing to the church. He's writing to believers and their faith was dying. And like this ghost army, Jesus is saying, hey, your faith is hollow. Your faith is empty. And so we need to do something about it. You know what, I I think we've probably all gone through times when we have felt that we look fine on the outside, we have a great reputation, but inside, uh, we didn't feel any joy. Inside, there was just a hollowness. And we didn't feel any passion. 
So the question is, how do you get some substance for, for us as Christians back into our lives? How, do we, how does that happen? Well, let's read our passage, Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not spoiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word for us today. So the first thing I want to do, what we've done with each of the churches, is look at a little city profile about Sardis. So Sardis has a fascinating story. I'll give you a few of the, the details. They called themselves sardines. No, I'm just kidding. Not really. I just want to make sure you're awake. I actually thought that. I wonder if this is where it came from. It's not. But um, anyway, it is a beautiful location, and they had a lot of gold and silver. It was like California. They had a gold rush in the area, and because of that, they were very wealthy. And uh, it was the first ever city to mint coins. On Sardis's coin was a ferocious lion attacking another animal because the people of Sardis thought of themselves as like the kings of the jungle. They were cocky. Uh, they thought of themselves as rulers. They, didn't, they thought they were beyond being captured or defeated ever. Uh, right down the, and the, part of the reason for that is right down the middle of the town was a narrow, high-ridged mountain that was built, uh, on the top of which was built a city fortress that loomed about 1,500 feet above the main city. And when the city was being threatened, <clears throat> the people would all run to this fortress to be safe. The cliffs on three sides were so steep, they were just basically vertical. And so it was seemingly no way that an army could ever get up there to conquer them. And this cockiness um, came because they thought they were just absolutely immune from being invaded. And there was on top an impressive but half-finished temple of Artemis. Um, the ruler of Sardis was a guy named King Croesus, and very wealthy wanted badly to defeat the threatening Persian army, and so he attacked them first. Uh, it didn't go so well, and the Persian army chased them back to Sardis, and they all ran up the fortress, the top of the hill. And chaos followed after that um, when they went up to the fortress, but the people felt pretty safe up there. Uh, problem is, one of the guys who was up there, one of the soldiers, dropped his helmet over the side. And when he went to retrieve it, the Persian army saw him 
and saw these secret steps that he was walking down. So they determined that they were going to walk up single file and, uh, and, and, and fight him that night. So they do that. They scale up the mountain while the, uh, while the sardines, while the people of Sarda are asleep. And the king is so cocky, he told all of his soldiers to, to go to sleep for the night. He said, there's no way they're going to get up here. Sleep is more important. So people of Sardis went to sleep. And when they woke up in the morning, they found out they were under new management. The king of Persia. Uh, not only did this happen once, but this happened two times. A couple hundred years later, it happened again. And, and so um, without any blood being shed, both times the Persians crushed the king of Sardis under their boots. And when this letter was written, the, the city had been rebuilt for the second time. So there was no apparent religious persecution or tensions going on in Sardis. Uh, in fact, the Jewish synagogue, which was usually found on the outskirts of the town, was right in the center of everything. It was a large synagogue with beautiful mosaics, which point to the wealth of the people in that city. But there was no ostracism, no persecution of the Jews nor of the Christians that we know of. Um, and Jesus presents himself, look at verse one, as the sevenfold spirit, which you have on your outline, represents the eyes of God from whom nothing is hidden. He sees your heart right now. He sees your mind, what you're thinking right now, as well as the life-giving power of God. That's what those, that sevenfold spirit represents, seven the number of perfection. And the seven stars symbolize, symbolize the angelic presence of uh, each of the, the angelic representatives, if you will, of each of the seven churches. Jesus comes to these lifeless saints as the one who has in his hand both the needy church and the life-giving spirit that can change that church and bring them back to life. Uh, he can bring those two together. He can diagnose the problem and he can revive the dead. He specializes in resurrections and that's what's gonna happen here. I am, I'm confident that, and that's what needs to happen with us. Um, so Jesus confronts him still in verse one and he says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but then here's what he reveals, but you are dead. Someone can look perfectly well on the outside, but their body is full of disease. We all know people that's happened to. They look just fine, but there's a lot going on. And so it's like God gives them a divine CAT scan. And he says, hey, here's what's, it, what's inside of you. And it's far worse than what could ever be uh, revealed in a basic medical exam. Uh, you know, you get your physical. It never be, would never be caught. In every one of these letters, Jesus is calling a church the church there that he's writing to, to repent of something. And what he's calling Sardis to repent of is a loss of honesty about who they really are on the inside. So that begs the question, who are you really on the inside? This is a little scary because there's nothing in this letter that tells us that this church had somehow gotten away from good biblical teaching. Uh, unlike other churches. Uh, and since there were no charges against this church and no accusations, these people were seemingly teaching the word of God in all of its purity. Maybe the church is growing. They had a great reputation, obviously. 
And they sure seem to be busy. He talks about, I know your deeds in verse one. Jesus loves the church. And not only does he redeem her, as he redeemed the church, but he is continually rescuing us from self-inflicted wounds. Jesus specializes in bringing people back to life again. And in our weakness, he is made strong. We just need to confess our sin before him and he's faithful to forgive us. And because we belong to Jesus, there's always, always hope for recovery. And so Jesus gives us here five ways to bring our faith back to life. And we need to take these steps. We need to listen and be serious about doing these things and this for us. Most of us have been in an emergency room at one time or another in a hospital. When you go into an emergency room, uh, if, if somebody comes in in an ambulance and, the, and their life is on the line, uh, you hear shouts and commands like, uh, get, get, start an IV right away, intubate him or he's going to die. There's no time for would you please or when it's convenient. No, these are commands. And this is the same, uh, the same sense that we get here in this passage. Uh, because they're racing against death, sometimes they only have a few second lead. And right here for Sardis, there was no time to waste. Spiritual death was imminent. And what follows are some specific commands for this failing church to be resuscitated. So welcome to Christ's ER. So what does Jesus prescribe? Well, the first thing in verse 2 is to be alert or wake up. Maybe you should tell the person next to you, wake up right now. Don't elbow them if you don't know them too well. But, if, um, but the, maybe today we'd say, hey, stop living in denial. Don't let your spiritual life be all about reputation management. The first command pictures an individual that is shaking someone who's, who's in shock. and They're saying, wake up. Or shaking someone that's about to ready to go into a, to a coma and, and they may not wake up from the coma. So it's a little bit like, they're saying, you know, don't pass out on me. Remember that Sardis had fallen twice from military laziness. And now Jesus is saying the same thing. He doesn't want them to be lazy spiritually and die from spiritual laziness. So this is an imperative statement. Jesus is saying, stay alert, stay awake. And for the church at, at, at Sardis, these mean, this, this meant being alert to Satan's uh, deceiving tricks. He wants them to stop living on their past experiences and stop living on their past spiritual accomplishments and to focus on what God is doing in their lives right now. To not compromise, to not be subject to false teaching. All that can lead to, to disaster if they're not spiritually vigilant. You know, one of the greatest football coaches of all time was Paul Bear Bryant. Uh, he took 29 teams to bowl games. Uh, he took 15 different teams to championships in their divisions. One of his players wrote about uh, some of his experiences with Coach Bear Bryant. And they said that um, they, they recounted what he said during his halftime speeches, or at least one that that he recounted, and he said this, he wrote, in this, this is Bear Bryant talking to his team. He said he looked each one in the eyes, he was saying this. 
They said in this game, there are going to be four or five plays that will determine the outcome of the contest. Four or five plays that will swing the momentum toward us or away from us. I don't know which plays those are going to be. You don't know which plays those will be. All you can do is go out there and give all that you have on each and every play. And if you are doing that on one of those crucial plays and you catch your opponent giving less, that play will swing things in our direction. And if we rise to the occasion like that on those four or five plays, we're gonna walk out of here a winner. So you know what? Think about the parallels to our own lives. Our life, your life is made up of a series of moments. And a few of those moments are going to be absolutely transformative for you. They will change your life and the lives of other people around you forever. And since we don't know which moments in our lives are gonna be the game changers, we need to, that's why John is saying through Jesus, Jesus' letter here to the church, stay awake, wake up, don't be asleep spiritually. So here's a question that we need to ask, each of us, to ourselves. What area of my Christian life right now needs most reinforcement? Where does your life need spiritual reinforcement? Think about that. The second command, also in verse two, is to strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. So what little is left must be strengthened. Why? Because it's about to die. So I don't think when he talks about their deeds being unfinished, I don't think he's talking about the the quantity of their work being deficient, maybe that too, but I think he's definitely talking about the quality of their work being deficient. That's what was lacking the most. They'd grown accustomed to doing what was comfortable and convenient. Their faith was almost invisible. It was not a radical faith. Maybe they had been radical in their faith, but it wasn't currently a force to be reckoned with. They lived among unbelievers, but the unbelievers didn't see a difference in the lives of the church members and what they stood for versus their own lives. They were not, the church was not letting their light shine before men to see their good works and glorify their Father in heaven. The culture didn't oppose the church, it just ignored them because the church was of no real consequence. We don't want that to be the case with us. Like the unfinished temple in their city, they were also incomplete in what Christ saved them to be and who he called them to be. Sardis had a reputation for being a vital city. It seems as if there was a time when when the church and Sardis and their reputation matched the reality of who the church said they they were. There'd been a time when they were really doing great things for God and his kingdom. That doesn't mean they need to work harder for their salvation, not at all. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying on the outside, you may look fine, but it's just a facade. It's like a blow-up tank. There's a lot of hot air, but there's no love. There's There's no passion to serve me. There's no motivation for Jesus. 
And this is interesting because that temple of Artemis that was unfinished, it's like Jesus is saying, I don't want you to be unfinished. I want, you, I want to see you come to completion in your Christian life. There's a powerful role that we can play in each other's lives and strengthening each other through mutual encouragement. That's why we gather together to worship corporately. We need each other's encouragement. We need the prayers of each other. Uh, think of the role that, that a mutual discipleship can play. In fact, that's the question to ask yourself. Who is someone who can disciple me in my faith? Hebrews 3.13 says, help each other to stand firm in the faith every day while it is still called today and beware that none of you becomes deaf and blind to God through the delusive glamour of sin. So how do we keep each other from going deaf deaf and blind? By encouraging each other by encouraging each other's faith. You know, we have so many great examples in this church. On every row, I know that there are godly examples that you should be following. We have so many in this church. We have Sunday school classes and Bible studies that you can take and should take advantage of. We talk about it all the time. Be in a small group, a smaller group where we can be Uh, where we can be face-to-face and share prayer requests and, and, and love each other in very practical ways. You know, maybe there are times when we think we're one thing, but inside we're something very different. So imitate the face of faith of those among us. And you've got amazing examples here. And this leads to the third command. Number three, remember your purpose. Remember your purpose. Verse three starts out, remember therefore what you have received and heard. It's like with the church at Ephesus in Revelation two, the Lord calls Sardis to remember. And what are they to remember? They're to remember the gospel. And we can't forget the gospel. Again and again, we need to remind ourselves that we have been forgiven in Jesus. We need his grace in our lives daily. We need to extend his grace to the people in our life. God's standard is perfection for us to get to heaven. And we can't do that because we're separated from God by our sin. What our sin has earned us is death. The only way we can get to heaven is because Jesus lived a perfect life. And then he died on our behalf and took our penalty of sin on his self. And he gave all who rely on him and all who cling to him eternal life. And they, we don't deserve that, that's the grace of God. And our names are written in the book of life and they will never be erased, it says. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, in Christ God put the wrong on him who never did anything wrong so we could be put right with God. Amen is right. So here's a question to ask yourself. What about the gospel do I most need to remember today? Man, we can start with forgiveness. The fourth command is in verse three. Remember therefore what you have received and heard. Hold it fast or keep it. What this command to keep it means Jesus is encouraging the church to hold on and guard 
what they had already received and heard. And this is the life-saving application of, of genuine faith, practical faith. Don't fool yourself into thinking you're a listener when you're anything but, when you let the word of God go in one ear and out the other and you don't do anything about it. The truth of the gospel and the truths that flow from the gospel are too easily lost. Satan is there to snatch them away from us. And so we can't let them slip away. We never drift toward anything worthwhile, ever. We never slide into the truth. You can slide into error. You can slide and slip into moral compromise. But you never drift anywhere that's worth going. And you don't want to drift and add to the gospel, and you don't want to slip and subtract from the gospel. We have to intentionally go after the truth on our own. We can have a meal here together, but it's not enough to sustain you through the week. You have to eat the word of God on your own. You have to read it. You have to study it. You have to meditate on it, memorize it. And as you read it, there's going to be something that needs to change. There's a prayer you need to pray. There's an example you need to follow. There's a command you need to obey. And so the question that you can ask yourself here is, am I up to date on my obedience? I love what Mark Twain said. You know, he said, it's not the passages in scripture and the verses that I don't understand that bother me. It's the ones I do understand. As you read God's word, uh, you, 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 specifically, you work on obeying. So stay where you are. Keep at it. Hold on. Guard it. Never let it go. Stay with what you've received and heard in your, when you first put your faith in Jesus. And then finally, Christ instructed the church at Sardis to repent. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Or change your direction. Jesus calls them to repent. No more flirting with commitment. Do the opposite of what you were doing before you came to faith in Christ. Doctor's orders. He called for a decisive change of mind and attitude that would set them on the right course toward recovery. He didn't whisper about their condition. He didn't try to smooth over the negatives of their past and present. He called it like it is. The great physician quickly explains the seriousness of their spiritual state. And he wrote them a very clear prescription. No more playing around with spiritual things. No more talking. I want you to do what's right. Start today. And so a question that we need to ask ourselves, you've got it on the outline, is in what area of life do I need to make a mind change and then a life change? Let's start with forgiveness. We already mentioned that one. Who in your life right now do you need to choose to forgive? I'll tell you, I've been around long enough to know that we all have someone in our lives right now that we need to choose to forgive. A severe warning accompanied Christ's five 
strong statements. If the church didn't take his advice and repent, here's what he says. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. This is why repentance, changing your mind and changing your ways is so important. Because how does a thief come? He comes just like the Persian army marched up to the top of, the, of, of, of Sardis and what was, what was up there that they thought was so invincible. You know, Martin Luther King, in an interaction with a friend, was thinking uh, about, with Dr. King, about what he'd been accomplishing, and he said, you know, I don't see you accomplishing a lot. And he challenged Martin Luther King. He said, show me what you've accomplished. And Martin Luther King said, you know, well, I guess about the only thing I've done so far is desegregate a few human hearts. That's where repentance starts. And in commenting on this, uh, an author wrote this. He said, King knew that the ultimate victory must be won in the hearts of people because no law could require races to forgive or love one another. The human heart, not the courtroom, was his supreme battleground. Then he goes on, this is a Christian author, and he says, the heart is indeed the battleground for forgiveness. And if there's anybody you are having trouble forgiving right now, you know the truth of that. It's something no politician will ever be able to legislate, and our ability to forgive others seems to be tied to our knowledge of having ourselves been forgiven. If you're having a hard time forgiving someone, just visualize yourself at the foot of the cross and you being forgiven for what you know you don't deserve to be forgiven for. That is the grace of God. Repentance doesn't save me, God saves me. Repentance has to have an ongoing place in a healthy Christian life. Is that part of your lifestyle? Do you live a lifestyle of repentance before God? I hope so. I, I love the clarification about this that Oswald Chambers wrote. You've got the quote on your outline. It is not repentance that saves me. Repentance is the sign that I realize what God has done in Christ Jesus. The danger is to put the emphasis on the effect instead of the cause. Is it my obedience that puts me right with God? Never. I am put right with God because prior to all else, Christ died. This is what repentance, this is what repentance should do every day in the life of a Christian. Here it is, when I turn to God and by belief accept what God reveals, instantly the stupendous atonement of Jesus Christ rushes me into a right relationship with God. By the miracle of God's grace, I stand justified, not because of anything I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. The salvation of God does not stand on human logic, it stands on the sacrificial death of Jesus. Sinful men and women can be changed into new creatures by the marvelous work of God in Christ Jesus, which is prior to all experience. So it's really easy. How many of your sins were in the future when Christ died on the cross? All of your past sins, all of the sins you will commit today, and all the sins you will commit for the rest of your life, forgiven at the cross. 
So we need to choose to forgive others and extend that grace. And the next thing we see in verses four through six is that the victors are provided a threefold promise for their faithfulness to Jesus. The victors are the ones who are walking authentically with Christ. They're the real deal. They're the ones that we all wanna be. So taking a true stand for Christ would be costly in Sardis eventually. And they needed to have their eyes fixed on Jesus and spending all eternity with him. You know, the emergency room commands have been given at this point. And, and the life-saving truths have been injected. And now all Christ can do is sit back and see if the patients will respond, if they'll follow the doctor's directions. But before he leaves, he addresses the, the faithful remnant. And the first thing that's promised us is that they'll be clothed in his perfect righteousness. Look at verse, uh, starting at verse four. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. And once more, he does for us what we don't deserve. And we cannot do for ourselves. And that is save us by the grace of God. And we see the same thing in verse five. That's the second one. Their names will be in the book of life. Verse five, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. The promise that our names are permanently written in the book of life should create in us a grace gratitude for all of life. And complete the works as we pursue purity in our lives as we live to reflect the transforming life of Christ to others. And then the third thing in verse five, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. So Jesus promises to confess the, these who are clothed in his righteousness before the father and his angels. He will acknowledge their names as evidence that he knows them, that their claims on, on, on he claims them as his own. They weren't ashamed of him and he wasn't ashamed of them. You know, we have this great promise in Matthew chapter 10 that says this, therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. You know what a lot of people do? They don't keep reading in Matthew 10. They just stop there. But there's a companion promise that follows that in, in verses 33 and 34 of Matthew 10. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And finally, in verse six, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And on your outline, you have this. Ears to hear means that this is in the Bible for you to put into practice. So we're to wake up. We're to strengthen what remains. We're to remember our purpose. We're hold, we hold on to what we've received and heard and we repent. So is your faith alive right now or are you just going through the motions? You'll either be growing or deteriorating in your Christian faith. What is it for you? You know, God wants to extend his grace to the real us who's underneath the facade 
And my prayer for all of us is what the Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter three at the end. He says, and I pray, and this is my prayer for you, I pray that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God And may you be rooted deep in love and founded securely on love that you may be filled through through all your being unto all the fullness of God. And may that have the richest measure of the divine presence and become a, a person wholly filled and wholly flooded with God himself. That's my prayer for you. You know, God does not want his church to look like a spiritual ghost army a lot of hot air, but just nothing on the outside. And I want to give you a moment uh, right now just to respond to the Lord. So will you bow your heads? And as your heads are bowed, maybe you need to say to the Lord, Lord, I hate the fact that when people look at me, they think there's more inside than I know there is. I want your Holy Spirit to fill me. I want your Holy Spirit to revitalize my spiritual life. You know, we're here at Claremont Emanuel, we're known across the country, I don't even know if you know this, for missions and the way we do it. And that's great and that's exciting. And we need to keep doing that. On the other hand, we just can't rely only on our missionaries to do the work of the ministry. We also have a job to do right here while at the same time we're helping our missionaries, praying for them and giving to them. We need to reach out to our neighbors. And, you know, my prayer, again, is for each of for someone to come up to you when you're in heaven and say, you know what, I'm in heaven because of you. Man, I want every single one of us to know that joy. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to drop the facade and be people of integrity, people who love you first, love you radically. And maybe there are some who need to pray and say, Lord, people may look at me and see someone of great reputation, but you know what's really inside. Lord, fill me up. Bring me back to life again. Light a fire in my soul and and help me not to doze off like those sleeping guards in Sardis. Thank you for your love for me and for never letting me go. We all, Lord, want to run back to you today. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. He who has said all these things declares, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.